last month in our homeschool co-op, the kids all had to learn about and then write either a paper or a presentation about a saint that they had all chosen. So this is the second year that we've done this particular project, and I must admit that I think the parents probably learn more than the kids do. Um, And every year um, there's been some tears shed as the adults listen to the kids teach us about these people whose lives were so incredible. And, of course, my hope and prayer for each of the kids is that the stories that they learn through this project will serve them later in their lives as they live out the story that's in front of them. And that they, too, will find the God who writes beautiful adventures with the lives of simple men and women like they will become. So this year, as they were all waiting in line to get their cereal and ice cream, and that's a whole story on its own, and if you want to know that story, then totally grab one of the kids from our co-op and ask them, and they'll tell you the story. But there was a complaint amongst the kids that they had to do all of this work and write these presentations and papers and that we adults weren't really doing anything. So some of the moms who had clearly done a lot of work, because it is a lot of work on the adults' part too, started like, I think, twitching, (laughs) like ready to smack children. But I was able to say to them, that's totally not true. I'm studying and I'm writing to speak to the adults in church in a few weeks. So I'm doing the same exact thing that you have done each and every week. So congratulations, Open Table. You get to see the final Odyssey Co-op Saints presentation of the year 2023. I hope I make each of our kids proud, and I hope and pray that each of us find ourselves in this story that God is writing with each of our lives. Now, the month of November at Open Table is my favorite month of the year because we get the chance to stop for a few weeks, and we look at the lives of some extraordinary people who've lived lives of faith. And I absolutely love diving into the life of another person and then trying to absorb and figure out what made them tick, what it must have been like to walk in their shoes. And each year as we do this study, I find myself falling more in love with God and the ways in which he uses each individual in their own unique way to draw all of mankind throughout all of history to himself. And so far this year, Chris has gotten us, or given us a very small shot, snapshot into the lives of two very different men and the ways in which we're still impacted today by their relationships with God. We looked, of course, at William Bradbury, who just happens to be a contemporary of the hymn writer that we're going to study this morning. And we got to glimpse the faithfulness of a man whose dreams were never quite fulfilled in the way that he desired. And yet he's still instilling in hearts today the simple fact that Jesus loves each and every one of us. Then last week, we looked at Asaph, the seer, and Chris spoke of the fact that he wrote of things that had not even yet happened, and yet his music speaks not only of judgment and loss, but also of the goodness and the restoration of God through Jesus. Chris encouraged us to spend this last week looking for his goodness in the everyday, in our dishes and spreadsheets, in groceries and sunsets, in the everyday happenings that we walk through each and every single day. Well, this morning, I want to take Chris and Asaph's words, and I want to go just a step further by looking at the life of probably the most prolific hymn writer who ever has lived. We know that she wrote at least 10,000 hymns, but it could quite possibly be many more because publishers were concerned 
that people wouldn't buy hymn books written by only one author. So they came up with, we know of more than 200 pseudonyms for her name. And of course, I'm speaking of Frances Jane Van Alstyne, who was better known as Fanny Crosby. Whether or not you know her name, you likely know at least one of her hymns because we sang one this morning, Blessed Assurance. Fanny Crosby, she was born in the year 1820 to adoring parents who could only watch helplessly as their six-week-old daughter was struck blind after a quack doctor treated or actually mistreated an eye inflammation that had been brought on by a simple cold. Just a few months later, when she was but six months old, her father passed away, and Fanny and her mother, Mercy, were forced to move back to Mercy's parents' home. Mercy had to go to work as a housemaid to support the two of them, and so Fanny's, Fanny's grandmother helped to raise her. Her mother and her grandmother both believed that Fanny should not be treated any differently than a child who had their sight. So from a very early age, you could find Fanny outside playing with all the other children. And it was during this time outdoors that Fanny learned to fill her rich experiences with the smells and sounds and feelings of nature that was all around her. And that she would later weave into so many of the songs and poems that she wrote. After reading about Fanny's childhood, when I kick my kids out of the house this week while I'm Thanksgiving prepping, I'm going to tell them to go find metaphors. So, you can all use that too. Mercy desperately clung to the hope that one day a cure would be found for her daughter's blindness and that Fanny's sight would be restored. So when Fanny was five years old, all the neighbors from around them gathered enough money for both mother and daughter to visit a new specialist in New York City who was having great success in restoring sight to blind people. But their hopes were quickly dashed when the doctor explained that the damage to her eyes was simply too great and she would never, ever see. As Fanny grew to school age, because schools of that day had zero training in how to teach the blind, Fanny was repeatedly told that she was too stupid. Their words, not mine, because I don't like the word stupid. She was too stupid for school, and she was sent home. Her grandmother began to tell her on a regular basis that she was not at all stupid. But if she wanted to learn and get smarter, she would have to learn how to educate herself. So only a couple years later, we have one of her earliest recorded poems, and this is what it says. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot and I won't. By the age of eight, she was known to pray this prayer daily, that God would show her how to learn just like other children her age. And after months of praying this prayer, she felt God speak to her that her prayer would be answered. And at the age of nine, when her mother was hired by a wealthy Quaker family in Connecticut, Family and Mercy relocated there. And it was there that Fanny first heard the words of Milton. He was also a blind poet, and Fanny knew if he could compose such beautifully moving poems, then so, should, then so could she. She began shaping poems in her head, and then she would dictate them to someone else who could copy them down so they could be shared with others. 
Now, Fanny lived the next several years soaking in poetry and music and continuing to ask God to give her the opportunity to truly be educated. At the age of 14, Fanny and her mother learned that a new school was being established in New York, especially designed for the blind. She immediately applied and was accepted, but unfortunately, her early experience at the New York School for the Blind was less than ideal, as the teachers discouraged her desire to learn academics, but instead encouraged her to learn real-life practical skills that she was going to need. But but Fanny persevered partially because the principal of the school recognized her extraordinary skill with words. And before long, she was established as the school's first poet in residence. As soon as she graduated, she was officially hired by the school to teach history and poetry and grammar. She wrote and performed her poems for every dignitary, benefactor, and politician who came to the school. And she soon found herself quite an advocate for the blind. In fact, in 1843, at the age of 23, Fanny became the first woman to ever address Congress. She was the first woman. She spoke through one of her poems, of course, of the need for better rights and opportunities for the blind. She also was becoming quite popular as an author, and her work could be found in newspapers, poetry anthologies, and pamphlets. The fact that she wrote in every single phase of her life makes it so very easy to trace her growth and maturity as a person at every, as as her growth and maturity was immortalized in her art. For instance, in her early work, I found out that she wrote about romanticizing the lives of slaves and defending their owners. But later, as Jesus worked on her, by the renewing of his word, she became an ardent abolitionist. She even wrote poems for many presidents, including Jefferson Davis, the only president of the Confederacy, and she encouraged him not to break up the Union. Fanny found herself an unlikely lobbyist speaking on behalf of education for the blind, preservation of the Union, and an end to the practice of slavery. During this era of endless success and opportunity for Fanny, the cholera epidemic came to New York, and in the chaos... Fanny found herself with the new occupation as the cholera doctor for the students at the School of the Blind. This had a great impact on her life that we won't go into this morning, but I highly encourage you to read about it. Shortly after the cholera epidemic ended, though, a revival broke out in New York City. And Fanny would go to the services with friends, mostly to listen to the music and to the sermons. The theme that stood out to her over and over again was this idea of giving all to Jesus. Finally, one night after going to a service, she had a dream where she realized all of her good deeds and crusading meant absolutely nothing because she was doing them for herself. And she was functioning apart from God. She knew that she needed to surrender her life to him in order for her life to have true meaning. So after this moment of giving her life fully to Jesus, Fanny continued teaching at school and writing poems, but her prayer became that God would show her how to use her life for him. It was during this time that Fanny began collaborating with popular composers composers on musical pieces. In 1855, Fanny befriended a new teacher at the school, Alexander Van Alstyne, and the two maintained a friendship for a few years, 
And for the record, I think Fanny was probably a bit flirtatious because at the time she was also hanging out with Grover Cleveland, the future president. In fact, this future president is credited with transcribing many of her poems. But in the end, Fanny decided to marry Alexander and her life as a teacher at the school for the blind came to an end. Alexander became Fanny's biggest cheerleader, and he encouraged her to continue using her maiden name because it was already well known. But he began traveling with her as she spoke and did whatever he could to help her. Shortly after they were married, Fanny became pregnant and gave birth to a little girl who only lived a few short months. Fanny and Alexander both took it very hard, and they never spoke publicly about it. But we do know that she wrote the hymn, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, as her way to honor and remember the only child God ever gave her. Sometime around 1860, Fanny was introduced to William Bradbury, who Chris taught us about a couple weeks ago. And Bradbury would drastically change the course of her life. William, one day, played a tune for her, and she came back the following, the following day with the first of the hymns that they would go on to collaborate on. Fanny spent the next four years working closely with Bradbury, composing words to his many melodies. When Bradbury died, Fanny was quite heartbroken and feared that her days of composing were over. But the men who bought Bradbury's publishing house recognized her value as a writer, and they chose to continue their relationship with her. Over the next 50 or so years, Fanny would go on to write at least 10,000 hymns that are found in hymnals still all over the world, with favorites such as To God Be the Glory, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, and Blessed Assurance. Okay, that was like all of the history that we have to, to cover, and that was a lot. But I think it's important that we know just a little bit about this saint's background as we move forward. Because what I love most about Fanny's life, and what I think she has to say to us today, isn't actually right on the surface. And we won't necessarily find it by analyzing her art, even if we did have time to read her 10,000 plus hymns. No, what we're going after this morning is more of the theme of her entire life. Fanny lived a full life. It was decorated with many of the accolades that William Bradbury dreamed of. She spoke and performed before huge crowds. She rubbed shoulders with rich and powerful. Her name was known far and wide. And yet there was something much deeper to her character and person that our world needs today. I think we can also find this same characteristic if we just dig into to countless Bible stories. We have Abraham and Noah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Ruth, Jeremiah, Peter. We could go on and on. But I want to focus this morning on a piece of writing from one man that we've spent quite a lot of time with this year. And I really just want to dig into one of the things that he had to say about this one life that we've been given. That man is Paul, who was born Saul, but God changed his name as a symbol of how radically his life was changed even though he was still basically the same man. Paul transformed from zealously following Torah and hunting Jesus followers to even more zealously sharing just how wonderful a relationship with Jesus is and even more how that relationship should change our lives. He was a real human. He had real struggles, and he wasn't a literary character. He was a real, live, flesh-and-blood man. He felt anger, betrayal, and hurt. He battled discouragement and pride. 
I think he probably had to restrain himself from being a manipulator and a controller of others. He was a real man, just like many of us. He wasn't perfect, and he didn't pretend to be. There are pieces of his story that we don't get to know, but what we do know is that Paul's real power seems to come from a similar place as Fanny Crosby's. I think we get to see just a small sliver of this in his writing to the Ephesians. We're going to be reading Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. I'm going to read from the message version because I love how it captures the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old, stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. But instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all of this on his own with no help from us. And then he picked us up and he set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in the world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. First, I think Paul got it. I think what marks most of the faithful saints that we find in Hebrews 11, that we read about every single year during this series, is that they got it. All the saints that we learn about every November, from all throughout history, they got it. I truly believe it is what God has been trying to help mankind understand. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to listen to the lies of Satan all the way back in the beginning of the story. It is the realization that we don't have to live the lives we were dealt. Paul is saying we're all dealt lives dominated by sin and death. But God... He's embraced us, and we no longer have to live life like we're still dead. We don't have to live desperately hoping to come up with some way or some good deed by which we can maybe possibly please God and win the favor of man. Or as Fanny said it, a life full of good deeds and crusading, but apart from God. Paul tells us that God did all the work. All we have to do is join him. He even created The work for us to do. We just have to join him. It's all about him. As Chris has pointed out on many occasions, we aren't the main character in the story, but we do get to play a part. Fanny's great friend, William Bradbury, wanted to be extraordinary, and he found his calling in the far more ordinary. Fanny's desire was always to just be normal, and somehow she was anything but. She was extraordinary. And the reason that she lived such an incredible life 
was she believed Paul's words applied to her life. Fanny knew that her life was full of death, the death of her vision, the death of her father, the death of the hope that she might see again, the death of her child. But she knew that God is not the God of death. He is the God of life. And because of this, Franny Crosby was determined to live. No matter what got in her way, she was determined to live. And not only because she desperately hoped that the words she penned would somehow help others to find their way into that same full life in Jesus, but she was so convinced that her current reality had nothing to do with the future that God had for her, she became a lifelong dreamer and learner. Wherever she was, whatever she was, had accomplished, she always assumed God had more for her to do and that, she, that he had already done the work and he had set out the way before her and all she had to do was show up and obey the Holy Spirit. She never, ever stopped asking God how she could best serve him. At age 30, she was confronted with the fact that all of her good deeds meant nothing if she was doing them apart from him. So she spent most of her life from the age of 43 working to draw others into a life with Jesus by writing all of these hymns that we sing today still. But at the ripe age of 60, Fanny, after another particularly moving encounter with God, decided she was going to spend most of the rest of her life among the poorest of the poor. All the proceeds from her songs and the poems that she wrote from then on out, the earnings from the biographies that were written about her, were simply given to rescue missions. And she chose to live and serve among the poorest residents of New York City. This led many of her wealthy patrons to begin to, to worry about her. People who had helped to support her and fought so hard for her to be given the pay that she was rightly deserved because female writers of that day made very little money, <laughs> like $1 a song. These patrons fought hard for her to have resources. And then Fanny just gave them away. Still, she refused their offers of a life of comfort and ease and instead chose to live in her small flat in Hell's Kitchen in New York. As she neared her 85th birthday, her husband passed away and she moved back to Connecticut to live with her half-sister because her own health was beginning to fail at 85. Fanny simply found new ways that she could love on the world around her as she wrote many letters and spoke with school groups and visitors who would come to learn from her. And even just before her death, she was still reaching out to friends who were experiencing loss and hardship, encouraging them to hold fast to Jesus always. She continued her legacy even in death. As she left the money that was in her estate, which was very, very minimal, to be given to fund a home for adult males who found themselves homeless. The only thing they had to do was work in the home to pay for their room and board, and they would be offered opportunities to learn gainful work. This home was established a few years after her death, and it continued for about 60 years when it was absorbed into a similar, similar ministry that still exists today. But the most amazing thing about Fanny Crosby and her lust for life amidst consequences that would crush most people is the fact that Fanny Crosby refused to play the victim. From her earliest days, her mother and grandmother instilled in her the resilience that she would need her entire life to confront and live life as a blind woman. She weathered not only blindness, the death of a child, 
but many other things that I simply didn't have time to tell you about. Because unlike my husband, I actually do respect our time and want you to be able to go home. But if you know anything about the statistics for marriages that lose a child, you can imagine the strain that was on her marriage. There was also the poverty that she lived in, partially because she was a woman author and rarely paid a fair wage, but partially because she gave everything away. In spite of all the challenges and grief that she faced, she was always finding ways to look outside of herself for ways to bless the people around her. If anyone had the right to play victim, it was Fanny Crosby. I don't know about you, but I think playing the role of victim is like a banner in the American society today. We become hurt and offended by anything and everything. But more than that, we focus so hard on our circumstances that we struggle to look inward and ask God to search our hearts. Don't get me wrong. Terrible things happen every day. Many of us are dealt a really bad hand. I know that. Fanny had horrible things happen to her, too. She never was able to speak about the death of her daughter or her strained marriage. She wasn't herself, for ways, she was, but she was always looking for ways to be a blessing to the people around her. If anybody had the right to, to play victim, I think it was her. She wasn't perfect, and yet she refused to allow those things that were hard to define her or the good work that God had called her to do. So what would it look like if we followed in her footsteps like we're told to in Hebrews 11? Can we go even further than she did? Can we allow God to take the areas where we've been hurt, the situations where we've made huge mistakes, the life patterns where we still find ourselves dead in our sin? Can we allow God to rewrite those parts of our story? He's a good God. He's gentle, and he writes good stories. He brings beauty from ashes, he rolls away stones, and he breathes life into death. Jesus came to set the captive free, and he'll do those same things for us, if only we'll give them to him. And then as we refuse to sit down and play the victim, as we allow God to work on us as only he can, Can we choose the path of becoming lifelong dreamers and learners? Can we choose the path of blazing trails so that others can follow behind us? Can we break patterns and trust that God will provide? Can we learn to stand with Paul and Fanny in saying that we're content with whatever he provides? I know those are big asks because it's going to require each of us to do some work. It requires us to allow God to change us from the inside out, which is exactly why Jesus came. Isn't that the story that we see over and over in all the saints? Jesus came and he brought the good news. He already won the battle. We no longer have to live chained to the past or chained to our circumstances. We don't have to live blind. Fanny got it. Even though her eyes didn't work, she knew, I'm not blind. In fact, when she was once asked if she could be given her sight again, if she would accept it, and her answer was this, no, the first face I shall see when I die is the face of my Savior, and that will be worth it all. 
Fanny lived a life that was rich and full because she chose to live the life that she was given. She refused to be a victim. She was a blind woman who could see a better future. She heard Asaph's words. She was a woman the world wouldn't teach. She learned to pray and believe that God would educate her, and she became a teacher. She was a woman who lost her daughter, but she continued to follow the God who gives life. She never wallowed in her awful circumstances, but rather she trusted that God would redeem all of it. And we can choose that same thing. We don't have to live dead in our sin or our circumstances. We can live Like, really live like Fanny did, like Paul did. We may not write hymns that the world sings all over the place. We may not address Congress. We may not meet presidents. But we can still live a life that inspires others to follow Jesus. So how do we respond to this? This is a lot. I'd like to pull our response today straight from Fanny Crosby's life. First, we need help. We need encouragement. We need people who don't just believe in us, but who believe that God believes in us. We need each other. Fanny would have never become the woman that she became if not for her grandmother or her mother, her teachers, and her biggest fans. She was pushed and encouraged and challenged and comforted. And if we're going to truly live transformed lives, we need the same thing. Let somebody else in. Let them come alongside you. None of us have to be perfect in order to deserve the right to be seen and known. God didn't create you to do this all by yourself. Second, stop playing the victim. I know bad things happen. For some of us, really bad things happen. The message of the culture is that awful things should define us. You get to live in a triggered state all the time. You can carry your diagnosis, your disorder, your hurt, your hang-up. You get to carry it like a badge or a shield, an anchor you drag behind you. But Fanny said, no, you are not a victim. Paul said, no, you are not a victim. The gospel says, no, Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead. You are not a victim. You live. You are deeply loved by God who raises people from the dead. And he says, get up and keep going. There's a world around you to reach. There's people to bless, and this isn't about you. It's about me. So yes, slow down. Process your pain. Take a breath and heal. But don't quit. God isn't done with you. You're still breathing. Keep dreaming. Keep learning. Third, look at your life this week and be honest. What's one thing that you can change in your life to move on in a healthier direction? One little thing. Just one. Pick one little thing. Is it reading a book that someone put, put in your path? Is it getting up a little bit earlier? Is it getting together with another person? Is it learning to pray? Is it stopping to rest and reflect rather than constantly running? Fanny Crosby was a blind girl who was kicked out of school. She not only prayed and fought until she was educated, but she became a teacher So as you think of that one little thing that you could do to move in a better direction, don't listen to that victim voice always in your head that tries to remind you you can't change. Because God says you can. Find the places where you need to see God's hand help you 
and then start to pray. If you don't need God's help, then you're probably not dreaming big enough. It's only as we take these steps and walk these paths that we find ourselves living life and doing the good works that he created for us to do. If you need help, reach out to Chris and I. We have some great resources. And finally this morning, as we sing Blessed Assurance once again, think about the words. Let them become yours. We need to come to God and we need to ask him to change us. Just as Paul implores people over and over in all of his letters, we need God to transform us. Knowing Jesus, being in a relationship with him, should change us. We shouldn't be able to stay the same. And when he changes us, then we can sing with all honesty, this, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all day long. Fanny wrote those words in about five minutes. It was fairly late in her life, and she wrote them simply out of her relationship with Jesus. Join with the saints of Hebrews 11. Join with Fanny. And I believe if we ask God, he'll show up, he'll change us, he'll fill us with dreams and lessons that he wants to write into our little piece of history.